We're going to continue in our study in 2 Samuel. And the, the name of the message this morning is The King Restored. And as we move into this chapter 19, let's just take a quick look back at what has taken place in the recent studies that we've been doing. You remember that David, King David, had been in exile. His throne had been claimed by his rebellious son Absalom. And in his betrayal, Absalom had swayed Israel and even some of what is known as Judah, some of the followers of David, into his camp. But this rebellion really only lasted for a short while. And as we read, Absalom's army was defeated by David's, and Absalom is killed. We ended last week with David's mourning over that death in chapter 18, verse 33. It said, The king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said thus, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, if only I had died in your place. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Now, it is interesting that David should mourn so much over this son who had rebelled against him. Absalom had, as we know, had done despicable things. He'd ultimately usurped the throne itself, or at least it appeared that way. And he was so rebellious that he even wanted his father dead. So why then would David be so grieved over the loss of this, this son? And I think there is a few reasons we could, we could come to. The first one is that I think David really felt guilt over his poor job of parenting. You know, David was a great king, but David was not a good father. He was not engaged with his family, and the relationships between his children, they were pretty bad. If you remember, Absalom really began his rebellion when the rape of one of his sisters occurred. And I'm sure he was waiting for his father, David, to do something, and David did nothing. So ultimately, then Absalom took matters into his own hands, and he ordered the death of his half-brother, and I think as David watched the actions of his son, he probably began to see his own sin, the things that he had done, thinking back of ordering the death of Uriah the Hittite. And I think he took much of the blame for what Absalom had done, realizing that he had lacked in his job as a parent. And I think, too, David most likely believed that he would not see Absalom again because he knew that Absalom really didn't have faith in God. Do you remember that David's son, by way of his adulterous relationship with Bathsheba, remember he got sick and he, and he died. And it was interesting because David mourned the child while the child was sick. But when the boy died... David stopped his mourning, and people were puzzled, and they asked him about it. And in 2 Samuel 12, 22 and 23, David said this. He said, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, who knows, the Lord may be gracious to me that the child may live. But now he has died. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? 
But here's the key verse. I will go to him, but he will not return to me. You see, David was absolutely certain that he was going to see his son again in heaven. I will go to him. But I don't believe he was certain at all about Absalom. I think he felt Absalom had no relationship with God. Therefore, he would not be seeing him again. And it caused him to mourn greatly. I think the third thing is, and I think we can all relate to this. Look, you as parents, no matter what your child does, you still love your child. And I know that many of us can relate to having a rebellious child, one who's gone off the rails, and we've agonized and, and worried and prayed. And I think all of us can relate to David in this way. And if something like this happened to our child, even though they may have caused it by their own rebellion like Absalom did, we would still mourn we would still be sorrowful. Well, there's a result of David's mourning. In uh, 2 Samuel 19, 1, we want to look at that. Joab was told, Behold, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. So the victory that day, the victory in battle that they had, the victory that day was turned into mourning for all the people. For the people heard it, said that day, the king is grieved for his son. Now notice this in verse three, and it says, and the people stole back into the city that day as people who were ashamed steal away when they flee in battle. In other words, he's saying the people came back into town as though they had been fleeing from the battle, as though they were cowards and traitors. They were ashamed. Verse four, but the king covered his face and the king cried out with a loud voice, oh, my son Absalom, oh, Absalom, my son, my son. So we see here that David's mourning had a very negative impact on the people who were loyal to him and even fought for his cause. And you might think, well, that's not fair. It was still David's child he needed to mourn. And it may be true that that David did, but I think we need to realize, and I think a lesson for us to realize is that, you know, leaders, especially leaders that are in such high places, such high levels of responsibility, they have responsibilities that you and I may not have. And in David's case, everything he did affected all of the people of Israel and Judah. And a person with that kind of responsibility doesn't always get the the privilege of having a private time to grieve like maybe you and I do. Because in this situation here, what should have been an opportunity for these people to rejoice and to celebrate those who had fought for David's cause. Instead, it turns into a day of fear and shame and confusion for them. You know, though grief is necessary, David was actually letting all of his supporters down here. He was really only thinking of himself at this point. Well, that doesn't last long because along comes Joab, as we read in verse 5 and 6 here. It says, Then Joab came into the house to the king and said, Today you have disgraced all your servants who today have saved your life. 
the lives of your sons and daughters, the lives of your wives and the lives of your concubines, in that you love your enemies and hate your friends. For you have declared today that you regard neither princes nor servants. For today I perceive that if Absalom had lived and all of us had died today, then it would have pleased you well. <laughs> wow. I mean, yeah. Joab was tough on David here, wasn't he? He laid this thing on him and he held nothing back. Now, it certainly wasn't true that David would have been pleased if his loyal soldiers had died and Absalom had lived. That would not have pleased David. But you know what? Joab says, I perceived. See, that's the way it seemed to Joab. It seemed like David really cared more about Absalom than he did all the people who were loyal to him. But David had really just said that he himself would rather be dead than his son. And I don't believe for one minute that he would have been happy had all his soldiers been killed and Absalom lived. But you know, when you think about it, even that kind of thinking on David's part was really being very selfish. Because think about the fact that if David had died and Absalom had lived, then Israel would have been in the hands of an ungodly leader, one who had no faith in God whatsoever, one who had become king under false pretenses. That would not have been good for Israel. So David was thinking of David here in his own grief. He was not thinking of Israel. But you know, it's interesting, and, and maybe you're in that period of grieving or mourning today. I know we have people in this congregation who are. And, you know, I've been around grieving people long enough to know that when people are grieving, they say many things that may seem strange, maybe even inappropriate at the time. That's just part of the beginning stages of grief. And, and I will just tell you that most of the time, if that happens and and you're with them, you're their friend, just listen to him. You don't need to respond to him or her. Just listen. You know, what Joab was doing here, we could look at this and say, okay, this is a biblical principle here. You know, when someone's in grieving, just go knock them out like Joab did here. Lay it on them. Tell them, get over it. But that's not really true in this case. This was a special circumstance. This is for a king one who is responsible for all these other people. And, and uh, Joab did need to say it to David, but this is not a recommendation for any of you if you know someone that's grieving to go and do the same thing for them. But again, in this case, because of David's position, he needed to hear how his behavior was affecting all of his followers. He was too busy thinking of himself at this point in time. You know, they really deserved better from him than what they were getting. They had followed him loyally. Now, it's good here to see, though, that Joab, he sees that David doesn't just need to be rebuked and just shake him out of his doldrum, so to speak. But he also sees that he needs counsel on what to do and how to proceed here. And then you look at it in this case, you would say, well, Joab seems to be acting as a true friend to David here. But I think we'll see that may not be his true motivation. He may actually have just been trying to secure his place in the inner circle of David. And we'll see later on that Joab does not accomplish that purpose. 
But I want you to see here that he doesn't just complain to David. He gives him a solution, and that's in verse 7. He says, Now therefore, arise, go out, and speak comfort to your servants. That's a pretty tough request in David's situation here, isn't it? Speak comfort to your servants. For I swear by the Lord, if you do not go out, not one will stay with you this night. And that will be worse for you than all the evil that has been fallen you from your youth until now. Joab's saying, look, if you don't go out and do this, you're going to lose all your supporters. They're not going to continue to follow you. And I think Joab's counsel is very sound here. He needs to bring David back into reality of the situation if David is going to be restored as the king. And you'll notice in verse 8 here how David responds to Joab's counsel. It says, Then the king arose and sat in the gate, and they told all the people, saying, There is the king sitting in the gate. So all the people came before the king. For every one of Israel had fled to his tent. So you can see what happened. They stole away. They were ashamed. But then they heard that David was sitting at the gate. This is a common practice here so that he could communicate to the people. So here's David. He comes to the gate, and the word gets out that he is sitting at the gate ready to comfort and speak to his people. You know, I find it interesting here how the people of Israel always seem to need the presence of a king. Do you remember when they first desired a king? And do you remember why it was that they wanted a human king rather than just the judges who had been leading them? Do you guys remember that? It's back in 1 Samuel 8.20. You can go back and read that. But basically what they were saying is we want a king because we want to be like other nations. God, through Samuel the prophet, had told them, hey, here's how your life's going to be if you choose a human king. This is what it's going to be like. And as you read that, or if you remember, you realize that it wasn't a pretty sight that Samuel laid out. And yet they didn't listen as God knew they wouldn't. They wanted a human king to be like other nations. So God gave them Saul, and Saul was a disaster as a king. All the things that Samuel said were going to happen are things that did happen. But just as happened so often under Moses, the Israelites just didn't get it. They had been chosen by God to be a nation governed by him directly and to look to him directly for their guidance and for their leadership. And by thus doing that, they would show the rest of the world who God was. They were to be a nation, truly one nation under God, governed and ruled by him, so that the rest of the world could see what it would be like. They would be the, the light, the shining example to the world of how it is to be ruled and governed by God. But instead of looking to the Lord for their leadership, they would continually look to an imperfect human being for their guidance, to be their king. And David, though David was a very good king, maybe a great king, he was still an imperfect human being. Well, let's continue in verse 9 here. It says, Now all the people were in a dispute throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, The king, meaning David, saved us from the hand of our enemies. He delivered us from the hand of the Philistines, and now he has fled from the land because of Absalom. 
But Absalom, whom we anointed over us, has died in the battle. Now, therefore, why do you say nothing about bringing back the king? So Israel, and here in this place right here, Israel meaning those who had supported and followed Absalom, they were confused. You know, they thought that following Absalom was going to put them on the winning side and that he was going to be their king. Now they don't know what to do because David had not returned from exile yet, even though the battle was finished. And nobody really understood why David had not just marched right back in to Israel as the conquering king. They were confused. I think they were thinking, okay, this guy Absalom, who we'd put all our hope and all our trust in and followed him, he's dead. And David's not here. What do we do now? Bible commentator Alan Redpath puts it this way. The folly of their allegiance to Absalom was clear. It had brought only misery and confusion. They were on the wrong side. They had rejected their true king. And therefore, the situation was full of unrest. And I think he hits it right on the head. But the restoration process is going to begin as we move on to verse 11. So King David sent to Zadok and Abiathar the priests, saying, Speak to the elders of Judah, saying, Why are you the last to bring the king back to his house, since the words of all Israel have come to the king to this very house? You are my brethren, you are my bone and my flesh. Why then are you the last to bring the king back? It's interesting that David goes to the priests. You never see the bad kings go to the priests except when they're trying to manipulate him. But he's trying to ask them this question here. You see, David is not gonna force his way back into the reign over Israel. It's gonna be at their request. But he is questioning their lack of quick action in wanting to bring David back to his throne. You see, David, by proclamation of God, is and always was their true king. But David wants it to be more than just by law and by decree. David wants to be the king of their hearts as well. And that is why he waited. In verse 13, it says, And say to Amasa, Are you not my bone and flesh? God do so to me, and more also, if you are not commander of the army before me continually in place of Joab. Wow. This is a bold political move that David makes right here. Joab was the commander of his army. Amasa was the commander of the enemy's army, of Absalom's army. And it's interesting that both of them are nephews of David. But David replaces Joab now with Amasa, and I think this must have been a real shock to Joab. Remember I said, I think Joab's motivation was, hey, I want to make sure I cement my place in David's administration here. And now all of a sudden he's out and Amasa is in. Now, why would David do this? Why would he take one of the enemy's commanders and replace his own commander? Well, commentators have some differing views on this, to be honest with you. Um, but I think that David was thinking of, of several issues. One, I think he was thinking, how can I bring 
the people who had been following Absalom, how can I bring them back into my camp? What could I do? What, can I, what olive branch can I hand out here to bring these people back into the camp here? And I think he figured that that was one way he could do it. The second thing is I'm not sure that David really trusted Joab to really have David's interests and Israel's interest, best interest in mind. And why do I say that? Well, remember, um, in the last chapter, remember that David had, been, had given Joab specific instructions about Absalom. Do you remember that? With two other commanders, he said, look, I want you to go easy on Absalom here. In other words, he's saying, I don't want Absalom killed. And I think he was holding Joab responsible. Now, we don't know for sure that David knew that Joab had killed Absalom, but I believe it's, it's quite likely that he did. It isn't recorded to us, but you remember the story of the runners coming back. And I think it's highly unlikely that somewhere along the line, David did, did not learn that Joab had actually been the one to kill Absalom. At any rate, he at least knew that Joab had not protected Absalom when he had the opportunity to. And I think thirdly that, that David thought Joab would certainly not be supportive of the policies he was going to, to bring into play now. The thoughts that he had in bringing the kingdom back together. I, I think he understood Joab is really, he's a man who is very willing to take revenge. He proved that with Absalom, but at other times as well. And David didn't want to go in that direction. His heart was not for revenge. His heart was for reconciliation. So David makes this decision to replace Joab, even at the risk of making Joab an enemy. But I want you to look at the result of this decision in verse 14. It says in verse 14, So he, David swayed the hearts of all of the men of Judah, just as the heart of one man. In other words, immediately there began this unification. All of the hearts became as one man. So that they sent this word to the king, return you and all your servants. Remember in that last statement, he goes, why is there this lack of, of quick action here? And now he says, it says in verse 14, the people said, return, you and all your servants. You see this move that David had made. They began to see that David was not wanting revenge, that David wanted unification. He wanted reconciliation. David was already starting in this one little incident to unify the people of Israel once again. And in verse 15, it says, then the king returned and came to the Jordan and Judah came to Gilgal to go to meet the king to escort the king across the Jordan. So now here comes David. He crosses back over the Jordan into Israel with all his loyal followers from Judah and also from the tribe of Benjamin. And in verse 16, it says, And Shimei, the son of Gera, a Benjamite, who was from Bahurim, hurried and came down with the men of Judah to meet King David. There were a thousand men of Benjamin with him, and Ziba, the servant of the house of Saul, and his 15 sons and 20 servants with him, and they went over the Jordan before the king. Verse 18, then a ferry boat went across to carry over the king's household. 
and to do what he thought good. Now Shimei, the son of Gera, fell down before the king when he had crossed the Jordan. Then he said to the king, Do not let my Lord impute iniquity to me or remember what wrong your servant did on the day that my Lord the king left Jerusalem that the king should take it to heart. Do you remember this incident? Do you remember what Shimei had done? You can go back later and look in chapter 16. It's in verses five through eight. But Shimei was loyal to Saul, not to David. He had never looked at David as a true king. In fact, in this incident that he's talking about, he fired rocks at David and he cursed at him. And so now he comes and David is returning as the king and he falls down, he prostrates himself before the king and he says, please don't impute this iniquity to me. Isn't it amazing what people will do when they're caught red-handed? Isn't it amazing what they'll resort to and they know that I might have to pay a price for my previous actions here. This was probably not too good that I threw rocks at the king and that I cursed him out. And I think if we look at it, we could ask the question, well, was Shimei really repenting for what he'd done or was he really just trying to save his skin? And my guess is the latter. And I say that by the way he approached it and what he said. You see, I think had he really been repentant, I think he might have included something like this in his statement. Your majesty, I have sinned against you and I deserve nothing less than death. And I willingly surrender to you and I will accept your judgment. You see, there's a big difference between confession and repentance. And that's a lesson for us. We need to know the difference. You see, confession is just agreeing And when we confess to the Lord, we're just agreeing with God that we've done something wrong. He already knows it. We're just agreeing with him. Yes, Lord, this was wrong. When we confess our sin to God, we're not telling him anything he doesn't already know. We're just saying, Lord, I missed the mark. I get it. But repentance is a different thing. Repentance means that we turn away from that sin, that we see that sin for what it is. And we ask God for his help. Lord, please don't allow me to stay in this sin. Don't allow me to do this sin again. I turn to you. I want to follow you. I don't see Shammai really doing that here. And I think it's important for us that we learn to not just agree with God, but to repent and consider the consequences that our sin really deserves. Lord, this sin, if If it wasn't for you, Jesus, dying on the cross for me, this sin would cause my death, my separation from you. That's how awful our sin is. We tend to not look at our sin in that deep of a way. And I think we need to acknowledge that God has every right to lay upon us the consequences of that sin. We need to remember that. That we are not deserving of God's grace and of his mercy, but he gives it to us anyway. And then we can thank him in the end of our confession and repentance that he does have boundless mercy for us. His mercies are new every morning. And I love that verse because I say all the time that I use them all up every day and I need them that next morning. Well, in any case, David here, regardless of whether Shammai is repentant or not, 
David is not going to take revenge this day. Look at verse 21. It says, But Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, answered and said, Shall not Shimei be put to death for this, because he cursed the Lord's anointed? And David said, What have I to do with you, you sons of Zeruiah, that you should be adversaries to me today? I don't think they thought they were being adversaries. But David says, Shall any man be put to death today in Israel? For I do not know that today, for do I not know that today I am king over Israel? See, David wants to show benevolence here. David doesn't want any more bloodshed here. How far has he come from mourning for Absalom to the place that he's at right now? To where this this shaking up by Joab, even though he may have questioned Joab's motives, has brought him to a place where he's come to his senses and he said, I've got to do something here. I've got to restore this country and I'm not going to take revenge. I'm not going to do that. Now, let's look at verse 23. He says, therefore the king said to Shimei, and I'm sure Shimei was shimeiing, <laughs> waiting for David's answer here. You shall not die, and the king swore to him. Now, I would like to say that this is a great picture of David representing the love and mercy of Jesus here. Wouldn't that make a great sermon? I mean, I would just love to do this. This is the picture of David because David is a man after God's own heart. And David often is the representative, a foreshadowing of Jesus. And it seems like right here that that's what he is being. He's being benevolent. He's showing great mercy, but... I can't really say that. Because though it seems that way, we'll see that later that David's mercy on Shimei is not permanent the way Jesus' mercy on us is. Nor is true mercy shown to Joab. I want you to turn with me, if you would, to 1 Kings chapter 2. 1 Kings chapter 2. Now, this is further down the road here, and uh, David is about to die, and he's giving his instructions to his son Solomon, who is going to be his successor. So 1 Kings 2, verse 5, I want you to follow this with me. Moreover, Solomon, you know also what Joab, the son of Zeruiah, did to me. And what he did to the two commanders of the armies of Israel, to Abner, the son of Ner, and Amasa, the son of Jether, whom he killed. And he shed the blood of war in peacetime. Isn't that interesting? And put the blood of war on his belt that was around his waist and on his sandals that were on his feet. Therefore, Solomon, do according to your wisdom and do not let his gray hair go down to the grave in peace. In other words, have him killed. That's what he's saying. Verse 7, But show kindness to the sons of Barzillai, the Gileadite, and let them be among those who eat at your table. For so they came to me when I fled from Absalom, your brother. Verse 8, See that you have with Shimei, the son of Gera, a Benjamite from Bahurim, who cursed me with a malicious curse in the day I went to Menahem. Mahinaim. But he came down to meet me at the Jordan, and I swore to him by the Lord, saying, I will not put you to death with the sword. Now, therefore, 
do not hold him guiltless, for you are a wise man and know what you ought to do to him, but bring his gray hair down to the grave with blood. Wow. So you see, David was showing mercy that day, but it was only temporary. And you know, we could look at this and say, well, that's not a very good picture of Jesus, and that's true. But we also could judge David for this and say he was just very vindictive and vengeful, and then he was wrong here. But I think we need to realize that David was trying to do what he thought he must do to accomplish the goal of keeping his descendants on the throne. He was acting as a human king would act with the circumstances before him. And, you know, having never been in a position of being a king, I'm not going to be too quick to judge David's decision here. But suffice it to say that we as believers in Christ are not to act in the way that David did here. That we're not to take judgment. We're not to make these kinds of decisions We're called on to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us. You know, I think people can read sometimes the Old Testament. You've seen some of these people. You've seen, even in our country today, some of these churches that are, they're pretty whacked out, you know, and they look at Old Testament. They say, see, we're to bring the judgment upon sinners today. Just like they did in the Old Testament. No, no, no. As a Christian, that's not for us. We're to show mercy in the way that Jesus showed mercy. The church And remember this, the church has never called upon to execute judgment on someone. Can I say that again? The church is never called upon to execute judgment on someone. Remember, Jesus said, judge now. Now, he wasn't saying that we can't look at people's fruit and know where they are. He says, if we're going to judge, judge rightly. Make sure you have all the facts. But he's also saying it is not up to you to execute a judgment on someone. That's up to him. Only God knows whether a person is saved or not. It's not up to us to make that judgment. When people who call themselves Christians have done that, when they have judged in that way, they really bring reproach to the cause of Christ. We've seen that, haven't we not? And I'll just call them out, that Westboro Baptist Church that goes to funerals of our fallen heroes and disrupts them with their horrible theology is an example of what I'm talking about. Well, as we've come to the close of the passage, you you remember that the title of this message was The King Restored. And that, that really is an accurate description. The king, in that physical sense, was restored as king over all of Israel, all of Judah, and he was back on the rightful throne. But you know, whenever we study the events of the Old Testament, we know that they're recorded for us to look closely at them and see what is the application for us today. And I think as we do that, as we look really closely at what took place here, that we're going to find out that this is really not about David being restored at all. In fact, it's completely the opposite. What it's actually about is Israel being restored to her proper king. You see, David was always the true king of Israel. No matter that he was exiled, no matter where he was living, no matter that he was on the run, and no matter that Absalom had proclaimed himself king, 
and swayed people to follow him, David still remained the rightful, anointed, true king of Israel. His position never changed. And I think we need to recognize that in this story, there's three types of people here. The first one are those who faithfully stayed loyal to their true king. Those who, when Joab was speaking to David, said, hey, you know, would you... These people here, they believed that you would rather have Absalom alive and all of them dead. These were people who stayed with David no matter what. They were true to their king. But there are two other types of people that we see here. Those who had followed their true king originally, but they were seduced into temporarily following a false king. And then there is a third type. There were those who were like Shimei, those who had never accepted the true king. He had never accepted David as his true king. And there were many of the people of Israel that were in this second category. They had really just been swayed by Absalom, who was a man of the flesh, much like the first king of Israel, King Saul. Remember back in chapter 15 that we read that Absalom used flattery and, and sort of well, I'll just say it, kissing up to people to gain their affection. Be aware of people like that. Um, actually, it says in chapter 15, verse 6, the way it puts it, it says, he stole the hearts of the people. He conspired to take the throne, and then eventually, chapter 15, verse 10, he proclaimed himself king. There was no declaration by any prophet of God, no anointing by a priest of God, Absalom was just a self-proclaimed ruler. Who does that remind you of? That reminds me of Satan himself. The one that said, I will, I will, I will, I will. A self-proclaimed ruler. And can you look here and see how Israel's falling for the seduction for the lies of Absalom and leaving David their true king it's a picture of us. It's a picture of us who at times fall for the seductive lies, lies of the false ruler of this world and following him instead of following our true king. You see, these people needed to be restored in their true relationship with their true king. And I want you to think about it today. Think of it as a believer here today. Do you need to be restored to the true king? Have you allowed yourself, have I allowed myself to be seduced into following a false king? Now, you know, maybe not in a visible way. This was very visible. David knew who was following Absalom and who was staying loyal to him. But have we been seduced into following a false king? And, you know, we, come, we still come to church. We put on our act every week. We bring our Bible, you know, and some of us, the bigger, the better, so that we can look spiritual. But we're talking about here, is Jesus still the king of our heart? Is, is he the ruler over our heart? Is he having that place of sovereignty in our life, or have we been seduced into following a false king? You know, Jesus said in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. 
If we call Jesus our king, then that means we're his subjects. And subjects obey the commands of their king. But fortunately, in verse 16, Jesus says he didn't ask us to do this alone. He says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. You see, Jesus gave us the power to follow him as king as well, not just the commandment. But just as David would not force himself back on the people of Israel, when you're following a false king, Jesus doesn't force his way back into your life either. When we've wandered off and decided that something was more important than our relationship with him, he doesn't force us. But in a similar way, remember how, how David had been you know, speaking to the priest and saying, you know, what's taking you so long here? Why is this happening faster? Well, Jesus does that as well. He speaks to you. He woos you. He loves you. He puts roadblocks in your way trying to keep you from following a false king. You know, and you have this big roadblock and we act like we're an Olympic hurdler and jump over it at times. But he's calling us back. He won't force his way. But maybe you're here today and maybe you're not even in that second category. Maybe you're in that third category. Maybe you're like Shimei and maybe you've never truly made Jesus your king. If you have not done that, then you're like the millions of people in this world today who are ruled by the one the Bible calls the prince of the power of the air. His name is Satan. He's the deceiver. He's the father of all lies. And, you know, you don't have to bow down to him. This is, this is, we get this wrong. It's not that you're bowing down to Satan. You're not down the street at the temple of Satan, you know, falling down and doing incantations. You don't have to do that. You see, his deception is basically convincing you that he doesn't even exist. How can you know you're following this false king if you think he doesn't even exist? He's not even real. But what he does instead is he convinces you to put yourself on the throne. Once he's got you doing that, once you've put yourself on the throne, he's got you right where he wants you. You're following a false king. You may believe it's yourself even, but it's not. It's Satan. And that lie, that putting you under that control of your own self, puts you under his dominion. I would say this. Once you believe Satan doesn't exist, but I'm in charge of me and nothing else matters, I'm the master of my fate, right? Once you believe that, he owns you. But I want you to know this, if that's you this morning, that Satan's in, along with his subjects, is gonna be just like Absalom's. Proverbs 16.25 says this, there is a way which seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death or the way of destruction, And that is the end of those who will not put their faith and trust and follow the true one king, the king of kings, the Lord of lords. But this king is not like a human king. This king who wants you to follow him and give your heart to him is different. This king laid his life down for you and for me. This king gave his life on a cross so that you and I could have a relationship with him so that we could not only confess but repent and turn from our sin and receive him not only as our king and our Lord but as our savior, one who brings us into an eternal relationship. 
So as Shane comes back up to lead us, we're gonna be closing in a song here, but I'm gonna ask that you would all stay for this song. I will be closing us in prayer when the song is over, but I want us to just take a few moments here. And I'm asking that any of you who see yourself in Shemai or Shimei, and you realize that you've not made Jesus your true king, that you've never followed the one and only the true king. You've not made him your Lord and Savior. I'm just gonna ask that during this song, if you would, I'm gonna come down here. And if that's you this morning, you've never fully committed yourself to Jesus Christ, and you wanna do that this morning, you realize that he is the king. And that he has been wooing you. He has been speaking to you. He has been putting roadblocks in your way saying, no, turn, don't go that way. Come to me. If that's you this morning, I'm just gonna ask that during this song, don't be afraid. Just come right up to the front here on my right-hand side because I wanna pray for you. But I think there might be some of you here this morning that are really in that second category. I think you may realize that, you know what? Yes, I... I know that Jesus is my king. I know he's my true king, but I've kind of wandered away from that. I haven't been acting as though he is my king. I have not been obeying his commands. He hasn't been king of my heart. My heart has been somewhere else. And I'm gonna ask this morning if that's you to just come down here in the front of my left-hand side, if you would, because I wanna pray for you as well. And don't not do it because of fear. We're not gonna, this is not gonna be a 10-minute altar call. We don't believe in manipulation here, but I want you to have an opportunity. You know, I know in my life that there have been times when I wasn't close to the Lord and, and someone gave that opportunity to recommit my life to the Lord, and I'm thankful that that happened because we remember those moments, much as we may remember the moment we got baptized, a day that you'll never forget. And sometimes we need to make that step. We need to say, yes, Jesus I've been following a false king. I'm not even sure which king that was, but it hasn't been you. And I want to make sure that I'm following you. So if you're in either one of those categories, um, as Shane is singing this song, and I want you to pay attention to the words of this song. It is, it's an amazing song. And if that's you this morning, just come down. I'm going to be down in the front here with you, and I want to pray for you as we finish this morning.